is possible to become free from debt, financial worry, your boss, and your zip code. You can start living a life you love, but first, you need to find your freedom. Using financial independence and lifestyle design principles, you can create the life of your dreams now. There are many paths to freedom, and that is what this podcast is all about. My name is Becky from 20free.co, and I am the host of the Find Your Freedom podcast. Today's interview is with Julia Menez, a travel hacking coach, speaker, and founder of GeoBreeze. After traveling to more than 30 countries before the age of 30 and saving thousands of dollars each year by travel hacking, Julia uses her three points of the travel hacking lifestyle to help overwhelmed overachievers take much-needed vacations for almost zero dollars. In this interview, Julia talks to me about finding the balance between spending time and money to solve problems, overcoming an overly cautious money mindset, and how she reached financial independence by age 30. It was so fun to chat about travel hacking with Julia, since it's one of my hobbies too. Julia defines travel hacking as the art of getting free travel by leveraging loyalty programs with airlines, hotels, and banks. We dive into the details of how to use travel hacking to save thousands on travel and get luxury experiences for free. We discuss how Julia stayed in the most expensive hotel room in Hawaii for free, travel hacking mistakes to avoid, and our best tips for beginner travel hackers. Welcome to Find Your Freedom, Julia. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for being here. So let's start with talking about your background. Tell me a little bit about how your personal experiences have shaped your views on money and life. Sure. So... My parents immigrated from the Philippines back in the 1980s, and then I grew up and my siblings grew up in Blue Springs, Missouri, which is a suburb outside of Kansas City. And when you are the daughter of immigrants, you have a little bit of a different mind view and a little bit of a different mindset about money because there's this very conflicting duality where they want you to have the American dream and they want their kids to grow up with everything that they see their neighbors have. But then also they have that many mindset of, oh, they grew up in the Philippines. And then it was also the Ferdinand Marcos era. So there was a little bit of a dictatorship going on over there. And so um, there's just like different money habits that'll go on in the house. Like we had a fully stocked pantry all the time. And whenever anything was on sale, we would just buy a ton of whatever that thing was. So we would have like years worth of rice at one time or all of the different, every flavor of soup. So lots of different mindset approaches to money that way. And then additionally, I also internalized like, oh, you should really save money for important things. But also, is there a different way to get what you need without just throwing money at it by being a little bit more creative? So, for example, scholarships were a prized thing in my family. And they were like, you should study really hard so that you can go to college for free and get scholarships. There was a lot of very community-based things where people would have dinner parties all the time and invite people over rather than everybody just going out on their own to restaurants all the time. So there was very much that let's be creative around money mindset just from the Filipino community upbringing that I had. 
But then also there was a different mindset that came into play with working really hard. And even though you don't want to throw money at a problem, it's okay to throw time and energy at a problem. So I just remember always studying so hard just to make sure that I would qualify for every scholarship that I applied to, or if you wanted to be first chair in violin or something like that, then you don't necessarily just pay for private lessons, you just practice more. And so that was also an interesting belief that I grew up with was you don't want to just throw money at things, but it's okay to throw time at things. And so as I got into college and then went and started work full time as an actuary, I would just throw so much energy into studying all the time and just saying like, well, I don't want to just pay for something in order to make my life easier. I can just throw more time on it. And eventually like that's just going to lead to breakdowns for anyone. If you just say, I don't want to take shortcuts for myself. I want to take all the shortcuts to avoid spending money, but I will just rather than paying for help or asking for help or paying for tools that might help me, I bet I can hack this in a different way. So that brings us to the travel hacking mindset, which keeps some of that and completely releases the rest of it. Where I still don't want to just throw money at travel because there's a lot of different ways to get travel for free using credit cards and utilizing the loyalty programs by credit card companies, airlines, and hotels. But then also, I want to make sure that people know you don't have to just keep throwing time and energy at things either, and that you should instead do kind of a cost-benefit analysis and say, is it worth maybe paying a little bit here to get a lot more return later? So... For example, paying for an annual fee with credit cards if you get to take advantage of a lot of different free bonuses or a free hotel night that comes with that card or something like that, and that you don't have to get frequent flyer miles the old-fashioned way where you're just like, oh, I just have to keep traveling and that's the only way to get status. So I really like that travel hacking keeps a lot of the good mindsets that I had growing up, which is you don't necessarily have to throw money at everything. But I also like that it combats the belief that you have to throw time and energy into things because if you look for different creative ways to problem solve, you can probably avoid both of those and you're able to focus your time, your money, and your energy in such a more effective way. I love that message about optimization where you're really trying to find the balance, right? You want to make sure that you're not just throwing one of your resources at something at, you know, to save the other one. So if you're just putting all your time towards something to save your money, you're not necessarily finding the right balance of optimization of the different resources that you have. So I think that's a great message. So let's go back into what I call your early financial life. That's when you first started making money, when you first started learning how to spend money. What did that look like for you? Were there any major mistakes that you made? How did you figure out your way around personal finance as a young adult? I think that I made the completely opposite mistakes that some people make, where a lot of people will just say, I'm going to take on all of the student loans, and I'm just going to have a really fun time, and I'll worry about it later, where I was very much on the overly cautious side, where I said, okay, we're just, we're not going to spend money on anything and I'm going to constantly like track everything and I'm going to pay credit cards like as soon as they incur any charges as soon as it shows up on the website I'm just going to like pay that right away that actually messes with your credit score a lot where if you just have it automatically paid when the statement is actually due and then you pay it in full there then your credit score will go up way more where if you keep 
any charges from ever actually showing up on your account long enough for your credit score to be calculated. Then it messes with the math and they're like, do you have 0% utilization? Like we don't, it's all divide by zero errors. We don't know how to deal with anything from the credit card company's point of view. So my money management was definitely on the opposite end of the spectrum from stereotypical mistakes that people make in their early 20s where I was so overly cautious. I was like, how much do I have at any given point? And I was so afraid of student loans. So I did not take on any student loans. It was all scholarships and whatever I made in the summer that would just pay for the rest of the fees and like a little bit of tuition for the next following semester. So I was very avoidant of loans and anything else, which I think also had a weird mindset around credit cards where I was like, are credit cards bad? Because then you're going to have interest. And then when people get credit cards, they're never going to be able to dig themselves out of it. So that whole bucket of loans are bad, debt is bad, credit cards are bad, everything is bad. You just have to never owe a cent of debt, which some people just say debt all in. And I was like, debt all out. We are not going to do anything that could remotely get me into a bad position. And like you mentioned, it's all about finding that balance and understanding how financial tools work rather than just saying, I'm going to avoid all financial tools and just live off of cash under a mattress because that's that's definitely not the way to go either. Exactly. It's so interesting to hear you talk about your debt avoidance and your really, I would say, cautious approach to using credit cards, considering now that you're such a travel hacker and credit card strategy is huge to travel hacking. So when did you get your first credit card? So I got my first credit card in college and it was one of those no annual fees, probably got like six cents of interest, like earnings every month, just like in savings. If you use this enough, you can get like six cents of cash back after spending thousands of dollars all year long. So it had no rewards attached to it. Like I mentioned, I would just log on to the bank website and pay off things as soon as they came due, which has weird effects on your credit score. So yeah, first year in college. And then I hung on to that one for a really long time and really didn't apply for another credit card until probably 23 or so. So at least five years already out of college before I got another credit card. Yeah, that sounds really similar to me. I got my first credit card, I guess right before college, it was like a store credit card for the store that I worked at. It was co-signed with my mom, so it wasn't getting me any points or anything like that. But my parents had said, we should co-sign a credit card with you and we don't want you to like use it a bunch or anything, but so you can build your credit. And I didn't even think about it because I couldn't use it anywhere but that store. Right. And then I got a cashback credit card when I was in the first year of college. I just found a note the other day that said, you know, for my first year, it had a note that said apply for such and such cashback card. And I did that. It was a really low limit. I think it started with like a $200 limit. And then they brought it up to like $500 once I had proven that I could pay it off every month. And I had always thought about travel hacking and I just thought it was so complicated. And I also didn't want to have more than one credit card because I was afraid if I had more than a $500 limit that I would get into debt like you were kind of talking about. And so while I was not as responsible about my student loans, I got into a lot of student debt. I saw travel hacking as an opportunity far before I ever started pursuing it. And and so it's interesting to hear your story with the credit cards. It took you several years before you got the next credit card. And that is the same case for me, actually. I would say a very similar story. I think I was probably around 22 or 23 when I got that next one and actually started pursuing travel hacking. 
Oh, I didn't even pursue travel hacking until I was probably in my late 20s. So I don't remember what that other second credit card was. It was probably a store credit card where I just wanted a good deal at the store. And then I think I wrote them a check on the spot and said, clear off the credit card debt. And then I think I went home and cut up the credit card. And it was only because they gave me... I, I think I needed a suit for interviews. And I went to Express or New York and Company, one of those, signed up for a store credit card, basically got a free suit for interviews, paid it off on the spot, and then never used that credit card again. That was like at age 22. And so then further down in the timeline, when travel hacking actually started, my husband heard about fire at work. Somebody was doing a presentation and he came home and was like, hey, I think you'd be really interested in hearing about these. And I just inhaled so much of like the blogs at Afford Anything and Mr. Money Mustache and Go Curry Cracker and all of those. And I just read through so many blogs and then started hearing about travel hacking that way. And my first reaction was very similar to other people's first reactions where I just thought, this is probably a scam and probably ends up biting people because they can't handle it. And I don't know if I can handle it. It took a lot of reading for me to eventually get comfortable with the idea and for my husband to get comfortable with the idea. And we said, okay, let's do like one or two cards to start off with. So I think our first one was the Chase Sapphire Preferred. And then I also got the American Express SPG card, which doesn't exist anymore. It's since they've merged with Marriott. And we were going to Morocco and Spain and put our travel expenses on that and said, okay, we've met the minimum spend that way. And then 20 hours before we were going to get on this flight to Morocco, we actually, our, our tour guide had to cancel on us and everything was through this tour guide. Our hotel, our excursions, he was going to drive us around for the whole week. So all of that was canceled and I had to figure out hotel and transportation logistics and everything with about 20 hours to go. So then thankfully the SPG bonus points for that credit card had just registered. So I was able to get us a hotel for pretty much for free in Casablanca. And that was probably the start of when I got hooked, where I was like, oh my God, we don't have to pay for hotels anymore. And so we got to stay in the lovely Sheraton, Casablanca for pretty much for free. And then did a lot of day trips from Casablanca and just booked like a day trip to Marrakesh and then a day trip to Fez and other parts of Morocco just from just from one hub rather than doing a full tour around Morocco. So we ended up saving about $1,000 this way from the guy canceling on us and having to refund us and then just booking it through points. And since then, I dove even deeper into travel hacking and then started thinking, okay, how many different cards do we need? And how do we make sure that this is a workable system so that we don't end up in credit card debt, so that we don't shoot our credit scores, and so that we don't have any other long-term unsustainable problems how do we do this in the most responsible way possible? Yeah, I love that story about the first time that you use those points and you really get the benefits of the card. I remember the first time that we really took a big trip with travel hacking and it was just this past year, actually. I had been previously just pursuing Chase Ultimate Rewards points because I, I have some aspirational trips that I want to go on, but they're going to cost several hundred thousand points. And I didn't have a particular use for any loyalty card programs that are specific to airlines or hotels, but we decided that we wanted to go to Hawaii when Southwest opened up their Hawaii routes last year. And so we purchased the tickets to Hawaii and then we got the companion pass and we got two Southwest rapid rewards cards and also the American Express Hilton honors card and the American Express surpass card for Hilton. We got 
I think, eight days in hotels for free using that. So we spent like $16 in taxes and fees for two flights round trip to Hawaii and eight days in hotels, which was just incredible. And now I like cannot get over travel hacking. It's just my favorite thing. I love using travel hacks in Hawaii. That was probably one of our biggest wins too. Did you go to Maui or did you go to a different? We went to Oahu. We were at the Grand Wailea in Maui and we had a free night through Hilton, through our Hilton Surpass card. And so when we were Googling, what's the most expensive hotel in the world where we can redeem this free night? Uh, it's at the Grand Wailea, which is a Waldorf Astoria resort. And it probably starts at like $500 a night. So we said, okay, we're going to go there. And my friend was having a destination wedding around the same time anyway. So we were just going to stay one night at the Grand Wailea. And then I actually also emailed them and asked for an upgrade because I was like, well, maybe like since I am a Hilton Gold member, if they, they don't have all the nicer rooms sold out, maybe we can get an upgrade. So then they actually upgraded us to a $900 a night room, which comes with free breakfast and dinner and pretty much everything else. And so we saved a whole bunch of money on food. And they also gave us a ton of different amenities, like a bottle of champagne, all these local Hawaiian snacks. So we probably saved about $1,000 on just that one stay. I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I actually have that email template for your listeners to use if they want to click on the downloadable link in the show notes for geobreeze.com slash 20 free. And we've been able to use that in so many different hotels around the world, like in Switzerland and Singapore and Malaysia to get really good upgrades and free amenities. That's awesome. That actually just reminded me that I was wrong. My first travel hacking like win was not Hawaii. It was in Paris, France. The same year, February of 2019, we stayed in Le Grand in Paris, which is a pretty well-known hotel. We used a free night certificate from IHG Hotels, and they actually upgraded us. They gave us five upgrades from the, the room that we had booked, and we stayed in a $1,500 a night suite. And they gave us champagne and they gave us all this stuff. And I had asked for the upgrade, similar to how your template goes through it. I had said, you know, it's for, we went there for our anniversary and it was our first time in Paris. And we were really excited to be staying at this beautiful hotel. And they were so gracious and it, it was an incredible experience. So the thing about travel hacking that I think a lot of people who are new to it might not get is that it's not just about getting free stuff, but you can also get kind of luxury experiences for either free or for like a really low price that you wouldn't normally get if you like most people who I think are into personal finance wouldn't be paying for the $500 or the $1,500 a night hotel room. But you're able to access those experiences without additional cost. Absolutely. And I know a lot of people who are into financial independence or very much in the frugal side, just shy away from annual fee credit cards where they say, well, why would I want to pay $100? For, for a credit card, there's a whole bunch of free options out in the market. But with that $100, you really just need to do the math of if you can get at least that much value out of it, because a lot of the hotel cards will have a $100 fee, but they'll come with a free night each year. And since most hotels cost more than $100, it's automatically paid for. And along with accessing some other luxury experiences, I have the American Express Platinum, which is one of the more expensive cards on the market. But then we save so much money in food every time we go to the airport just by accessing lounges. And so we don't have to pay for drinks. We don't have to pay for food. It saves probably $50 per trip because if we were going to a comparable sit-down restaurant, 
then all of that is free, as well as lots of different credits like Uber credits and Saks Fifth Avenue credits. So it's really important to just do the math of, can I get at least the annual fees worth of value out of a particular card and not necessarily say, oh, I'm frugal, so I just want to completely not allow myself to have these experiences where if you're willing to spend maybe a couple hundred dollars to get a couple thousand dollars of experience or more, it's very much worth it. And it's something that I've had to like slowly get myself onto that idea, starting off from like that very far corner of the spectrum of frugality. I'm like, I will not spend a hundred dollars to get a thousand dollars. I will get $100 for free. So just just kind of doing that math and making sure that you know when it's worth it is is really important too. And I like the travel hacking helps to bring that balance. I totally agree. And I felt the same way when I first started. I was really hesitant to go for any premium credit cards, the ones that cost, you know, $450 for the annual fee. But if you really break down the value that you get from the card, I mean, the card in particular that I'm referencing is the Chase Sapphire Reserve, which was $450. They've actually increased uh, to $550 for next year because of the coronavirus and everything. They, they changed it back from $550 to $450 this year. But essentially, they give you a $300 travel credit. And so if the purpose of getting the card is to use it for the travel benefits and you're getting a $300 travel credit, you're only paying $150 annual fee because you're going to use that travel credit for a travel that you were planning anyway, right? And then the other thing is that there's other benefits that have like much more value than even what you can put on it. Like global entry saves you time and you get a free global entry or TSA pre-check with that card. So I like this kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier in terms of balancing that usage of time and money because spending time to figure out travel hacking is a great way to save money. But by travel hacking, you can also find ways to save yourself time. If you go through the airport security in five minutes instead of 45 minutes, I mean, that's worth it to me. I really don't like standing in security lines. So it depends on what you're looking for. Yeah, travel hacking can save time and it also brings more of like an invaluable kind of self-worth thing where a lot of people who I think are really on the frugal side would maybe say, I don't buy myself nice things, like having that money mindset of people who do these kinds of fancy things are like either really bad with money or they're they're spoiled or they don't understand the value of a dollar. And a lot of these just different mental blocks of why they are not allowed to have nice things because like me... They, at some point in life, were probably like, oh, if I allow myself to have nice things, it's a slippery slope and I'm going to end up in debt and like financial independence is never going to happen. So it's a good way to kind of broach that mindset and say, oh, it's okay for me to allow myself to have nice things and it's not completely going to break the bank because there's a creative way to get around that. And I think along with that and saving of time, it's almost like invaluable to just learn these skills because you start to just value your time and your energy and your mindset and your happiness a lot more. So it goes much deeper than just how much money did I save on this, but also how much happiness and how much has this impacted my life to be able to experience a vacation that I never would have paid for out of pocket. Absolutely. That brings me back to the reason I started travel hacking, which was because I couldn't afford to travel otherwise, but it was a huge priority for me to travel because I had not traveled before. As a young adult, before I traveled abroad in college, I had never 
been out of the country. I'd only been to a couple of different states. Um, my parents weren't really big travelers. But then when I got out of college, I was in debt. I didn't want to spend money on anything discretionary. And I still had this huge desire to travel. So it was a really good way for me to use creative problem solving, which is, I know, something that that you really credit travel hacking for for creating is options to solve problems creatively without necessarily throwing money at it. Absolutely. There's three main things that I think travel hacking is really good for teaching people and creative problem solving is one of them. And then the other ones are you just learn how to do strategic planning, which especially for people in their 20s, no matter what career path you're going into or what industry or what your job is, if you can understand strategic planning and how to execute on those plans and meet your goals, that's so invaluable to any employer or even if you're an entrepreneur and you're working for yourself, being able to attain your own goals and just plan more off of that. It's so important and such an important skill. And I think travel hacking is such a good arena for being able to practice that. And the third piece that I think travel hacking is really good for teaching people is just to pause and actually enjoy everything that you work so hard to build. Because I know a lot of people who get really into travel hacking, they're good with math anyway, they're good with money. And I like to refer to them as overwhelmed overachievers where they're just, they're go, go, go. And then they want to climb the corporate ladder and make a ton of money and have a lot of different success metrics in their life. And then at some point you look back and say, what was it for? Because money, you can just have it sit there and it'll gain interest and it'll compound over time, which is great. But with points, it's not that way. You don't just hoard points and then suddenly they'll multiply into more points. You actually need to spend those or they kind of get devalued over time because of how award charts will change. And so it really pushes you to say, okay, it's it's that time. I need to take a breath and I've worked hard to meet the minimum spend, develop my strategy, execute on it. I've gained all of these points. It's now important for me to take the vacation that I worked so hard for because if you're saving up for a travel hacking trip that you never take, then what was the point of all of it? So I really like the travel hacking also kind of forces people to take their vacation days because it's so good for just mental reset as well. Yeah. And like you said, the points basically lose value over time. And so you're encouraged to spend them on experiences, which I think a lot of frugal people, people in the pursuit of financial independence or early retirement are they're they're used to not spending money on experiences or on things in order to save for those experiences later. But it puts it into the present moment where the best value of those points is going to be when you spend them now, as as close to when you accrue them as possible. So you mentioned the overwhelmed overachievers, which I totally relate to. <laughs> I am, and I am a recovering overwhelmed overachiever, let me say that. And you're very, you know, goal-oriented as well, very high-achieving. I know you spent most of your 20s studying for actuarial exams. And do you want to tell me a little bit about in your 20s, you were pursuing financial independence. So if you want to tell me a little bit about that journey, as well as what your lifestyle design looked like and whether you felt like you had good balance. Yes. So to work backwards, I did not have good balance in my 20s. I almost never went out. And then I spent all of my time saying, like, I need to pass the next exam. I need to get my my credentials as an actuary, and I just need to be done with this one day which is really good for certain things. If you are making an actuary salary and you never go out, suddenly you wake up one day and you have all of this money sitting in your bank account, but then you also don't have a lot of friends or a lot of memories from your 20s, which 
like I would honestly change that a little bit and I probably would have been okay, honestly. I know it, like if I told my 22-year-old self that, she'd be like, it will not be okay. It's the slippery slope and then you will you will die in this pit of debt and lack of achievements and it will not be okay. But looking back, like it would have been okay if I just like scaled back a little bit and said, I can go out once in a while and I can spend money once in a while or like enjoy myself because there's this very ingrained belief in like the overachiever mindset of if you just work really hard and you do everything the hard way, it adds more glory and more, just more worth to anything that you accomplish. And then if you accomplish something, but it was easy for you, was it really worth it to even try that? Or like, is it even worth mentioning at family dinners or award ceremonies? And you're like, oh, well, you know, I could have worked hard to get that thousand dollar vacation, but instead I just used a free, free Unite certificate. Like that doesn't make it less worth it. Even though I think a lot of people in their twenties really believe that like, oh, if I just like look busy and I have more all-nighters and I like have more mental breakdowns, then it makes it that much better to accomplish what I accomplished. And like, I mean, maybe, but for me, I kind of look back on that whole half decade. It took me about six years to get through actuarial exams. And I'm just like, it probably would have been okay. Like if I chilled out a little bit on that. I mean, it, it's good to be that goal oriented. It it really sets you up to have, to meet all of your money goals. But then like, honestly, there's more, there's more to life than just reaching phi. And then suddenly you're like, oh, well, what do I do now? Because honestly, like my husband and I, we can definitely live off of one of our incomes because I'm an actuary and he's a software engineer. And when I moved to work from home a couple of years ago, like even before COVID, I, I went insane and like I needed more human interaction. And that's, that's partially why I like took up this hobby in order to teach more people about travel hacking and just to, to meet more people. Because when you're so goal oriented and so focused on just that one thing, like I need to get to five, you really should look around a little bit and say like at the cost of what kind of like, I was so obsessed with, oh, I need to never spend money on anything, but like at the cost of what? Like at the cost of time and happiness and energy, it, it, it's all about balance. Absolutely. That's what I came to realize. I came right out of the gate, $100,000 in student debt when I was 21 years old, and I decided I'm going to pursue early retirement. I am going to pay off all this debt. I'm going to save all my money. I'm not going to spend on anything, and I'm going to work in this career that turned out not to be a great fit for me for 10 years and then I could retire and be done and very quickly realized that I needed a component of lifestyle design to be able to find that balance because it was an unsustainable path that I was setting myself up on. So you were pursuing financial independence. When did you first start doing that? And um, tell me a little bit about your journey. I didn't know there was a word for it for a really long time. So I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the concept of fire and fire until probably age 26 or 27. It was already after I was married for sure. And before that, it was just kind of a, oh, I didn't know there was a word for this. It just makes sense that you make as much money as possible and you spend as little as possible and then you can bank all of that money. But I didn't even really know about investing or anything at that point. So I'm like, I'm just hoarding like $100,000 in my bank account. That's not a good use of anything. Um, so it would just kind of sit there. And it, there wasn't really any kind of understanding of the higher purpose of why you should do that. It was just all done out of fear. Like, oh, if I 
don't have all of this money for a rainy day, then once again, you end up in a pit of debt and like <laughs> fall down a slippery slope. Everything. It's like a, it, it's a reoccurring motif in this podcast. Um, so yeah, I didn't really know there was a word for it for a while. And then when I heard about it, when I was like 26 or 27, I was like, this justifies and validates all of my life decisions I've ever made. And I just like double downed on it for a while where I was like, okay, now that we only spend a little bit of money, we can spend less money. And my husband was like, what? I was like, yes, because now there's like this strange group of people on the internet who have like validated all of my beliefs for never spending money. And he's like, I don't, I don't know if that's like the best thing to do. He's like, he was very much the voice of reason whenever I'm like, we should double down on everything and dive way too deep because when you're super goal oriented, that happens all the time. So then I dove deeper and eventually we looked at our numbers and it was like, okay, well, we're, we're pretty good. Like, do you want to retire? And so I'm like, oh, phase in. And like, that was one of the reasons that I started working from home amongst other reasons. And then I was like, well, I don't love this. I'm, I'm pretty bored, like working from home in, in Boulder, Colorado, um, just by myself all the time. So I'm like, well, I don't just want to quit my job and retire. I should probably do something to keep myself occupied, starting with not just quitting right now, because that's not actually going to bring me any happiness. So then we sat down and said, okay, like if we're going to keep making like pretty good six-figure salaries, what would we want our life to look like if we could release a little bit of that? And like, what would actually bring us more happiness? And we said, okay, well, you could probably like a nicer apartment. Um, I'd like to live in a higher cost of living area where there's nice restaurants. We can go out to eat every once in a while. I'd like to make friends and join different networks and membership communities and things like that. And then obviously travel. So we started to incorporate some of those things in our lives that make us a little bit happier and realized pretty quickly, like it, it, it's not such a binary thing where you're either like living off of rice and lentils 365 days a year versus like going crazy and just yelling, treat yourself at everything. And then just like swiping your credit card at everything there. It's a spectrum and it's okay to find that balance. And it's not like, Oh, like if you take even the slightest step towards the other direction, you're suddenly like, going to join that crazy cult of thinking that that's not how it works. So yeah, just being able to find that balance once we said, okay, like we could retire, but will that really make us happy? Or is it going to make us happier to instead keep pursuing goals and jobs that actually we find fulfilling and be able to loosen up on our lifestyle a little bit? Then that was really when the light came on. That's amazing. So you reached financial independence. You um, would be able to retire early and decided to continue in your full-time job, finding meaning in that. And you're also starting to live your lifestyle in the way that you're a little bit looser with your money and allowing yourself to spend on things that you care about, which is all what lifestyle design is all about. And with travel hacking, people are like, oh, now you can just like spend money on travel all the time. But then if you had to really sit back and think, okay, what actually makes me happy? For me, it's the game and being able to earn points and just being able to design optimized systems and also being able to tell people about it because it's one of my favorite things to talk about. And I'm so enthusiastic about travel hacking will change your life. And I'm kind of like a travel hacking evangelist, as you can probably <laughs> tell a little bit. So 
just being able to say, okay, I, I get a lot of joy out of playing this game and telling people about how cool this game is. So I don't necessarily want to remove that and just throw money at it because that won't actually bring me any more happiness. But would it make me happier if we went out to a restaurant once a week? I mean, maybe, and we can afford to do that. And so just being able to intentionally say, am I doing this because it makes me happy? Or am I doing this out of a fear of that slope and that I'm going to become something I don't want to be and that I'm not going to be able to dig myself out, being able to make decisions out of a place of this is somewhere, this is a direction I want to go in rather than this is a direction that I'm afraid of or angry at or resentful at for some reason is really important in just like the money mindset journey and something that I think a lot of 20 year olds struggle with, honestly. I, I struggled with it too, of just that kind of binary thinking rather than, oh, it's okay to find a balance. It sounds like travel hacking is a hobby for you, right? I mean, it's a hobby for me too. It's something you spend time on. And if you have the money, you could spend just the money to do the travel, but it's kind of fun. It's it's a game and it's a strategy. Like you said, it's strategic thinking. It really helps with creative problem solving and I've always been interested in problem solving, like interesting, weird problems. I just think it's a great outlet for something like that. Do you mind if I ask, how old were you when you were able to retire early, when you reached financial independence? We were right about there when COVID hit. And then we looked at our net worth on Mint and then it fell off a cliff and we were like, well, all right. Well, you're still there. As long as you're not drawing down, it, it... really won't affect you if you had hit the number before. Yeah, we're like, well, we should throw a bunch of money into stocks and buy more of them because, as they say, stocks are on sale. And Mm -hmm. I didn't really want to just, like, up and leave when COVID hit because I'm like, well, I'm stuck inside all day anyway. Like, that that seems like a silly time to quit your job. And I'm a healthcare actuary, so I'm like, that seems like also not a good time to just be like, okay, goodbye, healthcare industry, like, as the world is struggling. Because there's also, like, that sense of duty to not just leave your team because just because you can, because you're financially independent. If you enjoy what you do and you find meaning in it, then you don't have to leave just because you can. So I would say, yeah, so around 30 years old because I'm 30 right now. Again, similarly, I'm just finding so many similarities in our story. We hit Coast Fi in February and then the you know stock market fell off a cliff for a while there. But the great thing about Coastify is that those are your retirement funds that you're not going to touch until you hit retirement age. So we don't need to worry about the short-term volatility in the market. We're still there. And it sounds like the same for you, especially since you still have income and you're still working your full-time jobs and everything. And that's kind of the the beautiful thing about being invested is we don't have to you know, while our money will grow, right, we don't have to worry about it in the short term because investments are for the long term. Exactly. And then you still have your normal income where you can enjoy life as you normally would. And my husband was like, so if we just like wanted to have a 0% savings rate, I don't know what we would do. Like with all that, we were just like, we have to spend this much money each year. And, and we live in Jersey City. So three miles away from New York City. I mean, we could probably figure it out. We could like rent a a yacht every weekend. We can't even go out right now. I I guess we could get table service at nightclubs, but my husband hates nightclubs. I'm trying to like imagine all of the things that people do in New York, right? Like we could drink really expensive scotch, but I don't like scotch. I'm I'm trying to think of like how... How you would spend that much money. What a fun thought experiment. I could buy a bunch of 
clothes off the rack at the New York fashion show um, that I would never wear because I don't have any understanding of fashion and like anything with like the podcast people aren't going to see my hand motions, but like anything with plumes that are just like coming out of like the the collar or anything. I'm like, I don't understand how people can wear this. (laughs) This has been an interesting exercise if I had to go through like multiple hundred thousand dollars each year in New York, how I would spend it. I don't even know. I don't even know what I would do because so much of like the entertainment that I get off of this is just, oh, it's a game. And like, how much free travel can I get for a low price? Because I, I was listening to a different podcast where like, think of what makes you happiest. And then what, what would your life look like if you spent four times as much money on it? I'm like, on travel hacking? Well, I mean, that doesn't scale as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could do some really extravagant travel hacking trips, you know, if you're combining the money behind the travel hacking strategy. So to get back into travel hacking, do you want to give me just a real quick overview of how you would define travel hacking? Yeah. So travel hacking, it's the art of getting free travel by leveraging loyalty programs by credit card companies, airline companies, and hotel companies. And in case everybody hasn't picked up on it, it's like 100% legal, which is one of the things that we get asked all the time is like, are you doing something shady or scammy because it has the word hacking in it? No, it's it's completely legal. So that's how I would kind of define travel hacking is how you get free travel by leveraging different loyalty programs. What advice would you give to someone who wants to start travel hacking, but they don't know where to start? I would say like there's two unexpected places to start with travel hacking. And the first one is just by getting a Pinterest account and trying to figure out where you even want to go. Because some people, when they start travel hacking, they're just like, I'm just going to crew a whole bunch of points and I don't know what to do. And it's kind of just like, I mean, you could do that, but then it'll take you longer to redeem your points for a trip that you actually want to take if you just start applying for cards left and right. Like, I'm going to get a Chase card, I'm going to get an American Express card, and then a British Airways card, and then this this card that for some reason only flies to Taiwan, like, I'll do that, and I don't want to go to Taiwan. So then suddenly you have, like, a dozen different pockets of points that may or may not transfer to each other, rather than having a clear strategy of, here's where I want to go, and here's the credit cards that would most help me with that goal. So I tell people, like, even if you don't know where to go, just spend a night or so on Pinterest looking for travel inspiration and then actually have a tangible goal, like a travel goal that you want to work towards because it makes it so much more real and so much more motivating to actually learn the rules of travel hacking if you have something that you want to work towards. And then the second step I would say is know your current starting position, which involves knowing your credit score because a lot of travel hacking cards, you need a credit score of at least 700 to 750. And then you also want to know your generalized spending patterns and your personalized spending patterns. So if you use a tool like Mint, it'll give you a pie chart that says you spend this much money on rent versus gas, groceries, travel. And then it's not to shame yourself, like, why is my budget completely out of control? But rather, then you can see, like, okay, I spend a lot more money on food than other things. And then you can find credit cards that give you bonus points for spending on restaurants and groceries rather than some credit cards might give you more points if you travel more or if you spend a lot of money on gas because I live near New York City. We don't even have a car. So if if we had one of those credit cards that give us a lot of gas points, we just wouldn't really be able to optimize our spending in that way. So start with Pinterest and then understand your current financial situation. 
Yeah, I definitely think having a vision of what travel hacking is going to help you achieve. So so have an idea of what that trip is going to look like and where you're going to go is so motivating because there is a little bit of learning that has to happen to make it work. But when you're putting together a strategy to go to Tahiti and Bora Bora with the, you know, the overwater bungalows, which was my first aspirational plan, right? I said, I want to be able to save enough points to go here. We ended up switching and going to Hawaii, but it was still a really great mental exercise for me to have that goal and really put what I wanted those points for into concrete terms in my mind. Exactly. It, it helps so much when you have one of those smart goals where you say, okay, here's where I want to go. Here's when I want to go. Here's what who I want to go with. And just having a more concrete picture in your mind rather than I'm going to apply for some credit cards and then one day I'll get free travel. Because if you do that, there's there's a couple things that could happen. One, you could just lose motivation because then you ask yourself, why am I even doing this? And then second, like you might end up disappointing yourself if you're like, oh, I want to live like an Instagram influencer and you don't know like how many points that even takes where you're like, I just want this lifestyle. And it, it requires a little bit of research to be like, okay, well, how many points does a first class flight even cost and where would you go with that first class flight and what hotels would you want to stay at and how much does it cost to get into those hotels so being able to have more of a concrete plan rather than just say I'm going to apply for a travel hacking card and then a year later say why am I not living like these people who I see on the on the internet who may or may not actually be living that way it it could set you up for disappointment if you don't have like real concrete goals that you want to work towards and a clear vision of what you want to work towards Absolutely. And the other thing that you mentioned with knowing where you're starting from is your credit score. I think a lot of people, when they think about travel hacking, they think about applying for all these credit cards. And I think the first thing that someone thinks about when they, you know, are thinking about credit is their credit score. Will this be bad for my credit score? Is it going to, you know, make banks not want to give me credit cards anymore? Can you explain how that works with travel hacking? Sure. So a lot of people are afraid that travel hacking is going to destroy their credit if they don't have a good understanding of the different components to make up credit. The biggest piece, which is 35%, is your credit payment history. And one of the key rules of travel hacking is whatever charges you incur, you should just have it paid off automatically in full every month, full statement balance. And if you do that, it, it helps with a couple things. One, your mind is clear and you don't have to worry about, oh, do, like, when should I log in to pay every single one of these credit card charges? Because I've been there. It's not a fun game. So just set it up automatically. And then it builds up your credit history. It'll like super boost your credit history if you just incur these charges and then it hits your credit score and then it's paid off. You never have to pay interest on it. So that 35%, which is your credit payment history, goes way, way up. A second piece is utilization. And a lot of people think, oh, if I have a lot of unused credit, they're going to take away my credit cards because I haven't been using their products. But actually, you want to keep your utilization somewhere between 1% to 9%, which sounds really low to a lot of people. If people are like, oh, I only have a $2,000 credit limit on my one credit card, and I cannot survive off of only putting $200 on it every month, how would you go about that? The answer is to get another credit card, because if you get another $2,000 limit credit card, then suddenly you have $4,000 to work with in your denominator. And as you start travel hacking and getting more and more cards, 
that denominator gets really, really big. And suddenly it's really easy to have a single digit utilization number, which also really helps your credit score. It is important to keep your cards active. So for cards that maybe you're only keeping around because it has one free hotel night each year and you don't really use it for anything else, or cards that you've had for a long time that you're keeping open just for the the sake of like long credit history, which is also good for your score. It's good to put like a stick of gum or something really cheap, like a, a $2 monthly subscription to something on those credit cards just to make sure that they do stay active, but you don't have to be using up a lot of your credit that you've been assigned. Banks and credit card companies do this weird thing where they say, if you're like, hey, I've been using up all of my credit, so I need more credit, they'll say, well, you used up all your credit, so we can't give you any more. And then it's this like weird circular logic of, but that's why I need more, where when you have a really low credit utilization, you say, hey, I don't really need any more credit. Credit card companies and banks will just throw more credit at you. They're like, clearly, you're responsible. Here's more credit that you do not really need in order to meet your spending necessities. So... Those are a couple of the different ways that travel hacking can help your credit score. The one way that it would hurt is there's a piece for new credit, which I think is 10%. It's pretty small. And you do have a hard pull on your credit score every time you have a new application. But once you're, you've been in the game for a while and you have all this credit built up, then those new inquiries, it, it makes less and less of a dent each time just because of proportions and how the denominator works and how much credit you already have built up. So it won't matter too much. I also like to remind people that excellent is just as good as perfect in the credit card world. You don't need to have an 850 credit score in order to get the best credit cards. You will qualify just fine with a 700 or a 750 on a lot of the different travel hacking credit cards. My credit score personally hovers around the 800 mark, and I, I haven't had any trouble with getting approved for any of the different cards, even if it drops 13 or 15 points here and there. It'll bounce back up, and I think it's it's also just a good life lesson that excellent is just as good as perfect. You don't have to have like a perfect score every time, and if it drops down a couple points, like you don't need to sweat it. That is a great life lesson. I think I could have used hearing that like 10 years ago when I was such a perfectionist about everything. But I totally agree. My credit score has actually gotten better thanks to travel hacking. And the only times that I see it affecting my credit score negatively is when I do have a new application, which causes a hard pull, and it bounces back very quickly from that. So I would recommend to people who are interested in it, you know, start tracking your credit score. I think that's a good thing to do in general. But you'll see that using your cards properly, paying them off in full every month, making sure that you're keeping old accounts, like historical accounts active. I mean, I still have that card that I got, the very first credit card, and I put, you know, like a stick of gum on it every year so that I can keep it active even though I don't shop at that store anymore. And that helps the length of my credit history. So I would say that that shouldn't be a concern, I think, in terms of having travel hacking credit cards negatively affect your credit history. And the, the funny thing that you said about them extending you more and more credit lines, you know, and, and giving you a lot. I, I was like 23 or 24 years old and I had a credit card company give me a $10,000 credit line. And I, it blew my mind. I was like, what am I going to spend $10,000 on? Why would you trust a 24-year-old with $10,000 worth of credit? You know, and now that I'm travel hacking, I have you know, more than like 10 times that, but it's something that should be used responsibly. And I think 
you know, having a good financial foundation before you start travel hacking is really important. Knowing what your spending is, like you had mentioned earlier, and making sure that you have good habits around using credit and paying it off. Because the other thing about travel hacking is that you have minimum spends in order to earn the rewards points. So do you want to talk about that a little bit, how that works, how you actually get points from travel hacking with credit cards? Yes. So with most credit cards in the travel hacking space, they'll have something like, oh, you get 50,000 bonus points if you spend at least $3,000 in the first three months of card opening. And a lot of people will think, I don't have an extra $3,000 to spend, so I'm just not going to get the bonus points. But you really want to make sure that you're always meeting the minimum spend and always getting that sign-up bonus because that's where you can get the majority of points because afterwards, you may or may not use that card a ton. And it's important to remember, you don't need to spend an extra $3,000. You need to correctly time $3,000 that you were going to spend anyway. So I always recommend that people get credit cards right before a big purchase. So whether that's a tuition payment you can put on a credit card, or if you have some kind of elective medical surgery, or one of my favorites is I always tell people who are engaged that if you're going to be paying for a wedding, you should be getting a free honeymoon out of it because your wedding is going to cost at least $3,000. You can pair up with your fiance to get at least a couple credit cards and maybe one of you gets some free flights, one of you gets free hotel room. And so the key is not to just spend money that you weren't going to spend or else that's going to put you in a pretty bad financial position. It's more important to be able to have a good financial picture of what your spending is going to be like anyway and tailor your travel hacking strategy and your card opening strategy around what you anticipate your expenses to be, which is a really good exercise in anticipating your expenses and knowing yourself well enough. And it also keeps you from just like buying things that you weren't expecting to buy. And it's, it's just a really good mental exercise for future thinking and being able to anticipate what your expenses are going to be. Definitely. And if you're accustomed to creating sinking funds so that you can save money ahead of time for things like car maintenance, which you know will happen at some point, but you're not sure when, or it's something that's scheduled, you know, you want to buy new furniture, but you're going to save the money ahead of time you can be prepared for those expenditures. And then, like you mentioned, I think the part that I like to emphasize about travel hacking is I don't recommend it to anyone who can't figure out how they're going to make the minimum spend before they apply for the credit card. Because otherwise, you're spending money that you wouldn't have normally spent in order to get those points. And so the value that you're getting from those points, you know, in terms of how much money you're spending to get them is is decreased. And you might think, oh, I'm getting this vacation for free. But if you spent $3,000 at the minimum spend in order to get those points, it might be a $3,000 vacation if you wouldn't have spent that money in the first place. There are different tricks to getting minimum spend. Like, Maybe you go out with friends and then you just say, okay, like I'll, I'll pay the bill and then everybody Venmo me so that you can at least get the credit card charges on your card. Or if you know you're going to spend a certain amount on groceries, you can, you can buy gift cards in advance to, to use slowly over time for grocery store. So there's different ways as long as you can anticipate how your, your cash flow is going to work in the future months anyway. But I would definitely agree. I would not recommend this hobby to, certain groups of people. And one is if your spend is just so low that you're not going to meet the minimum spend anyway, obviously don't inflate your expenses just to be able to do this. Never spend more money than you anticipated just to get points because at that point you might as well have just paid money anyway. 
Also, people who can't make like their monthly payments in full every month. Because if you let a balance roll over from month to month, then you have to pay a lot of interest because credit cards in the travel hacking space have some of the highest interest rates anywhere in the market. And the interest payments that you have are going to erode at the value that you're getting out of the free travel. So it's two things that I would definitely make sure people are aware of is only do this if you know how to meet your minimum spend, like you said, and then also only do this if you can afford to pay off your credit card balance in full automatically each month. And one tip I have for meeting your minimum spend is if you work for a company where you have to do travel or have expenditures on the company's behalf, but you're allowed to use your own credit card, or in some cases they don't give you a company credit card, so you have to use your own and then reimburse it, that was one of the ways that I started meeting minimum spends was I had travel for work and I had to put flights and hotels and cars on my own credit card and get a reimbursement, but I wasn't actually spending that money. I was able to meet the minimum spend without you know, going above what my normal budget would be normally. So I tried to plan those things. Sometimes it's difficult, but if you do have a job that requires something like travel, then I would definitely look into pairing those strategies together. Yes, that's a really good point as well. I remember when our office rolled out corporate cars and was like, everybody's required to do these. A lot of people got really upset because they're like, oh, but my points and my miles. So yeah, if, if you're able to work in a job where you can put job-related expenses and then get reimbursed for it, it's a great way to get a ton of points really fast. Tell me what are the biggest mistakes that you see that someone could make when they're travel hacking if they're first getting started? What would you want to let a beginner know about the strategy of starting travel hacking? Yeah, so there's definitely a few different, I'd say, categories of mistakes. And the first one is financial, like you mentioned, where you are spending money you wouldn't normally have in order just to get points, or you're not paying off your minimum balance. I think a second one would be setting expectations for how much you, how many points you can get and what kind of travel that can get you. Because some people are just like, I read about this blogger on the internet. He somehow got a million miles in his first year. I haven't gotten anywhere near a million miles. I'm very disappointed in this hobby. And there's a couple things to keep in mind. So back in like 2015, 2016, trail hacking was like the Wild West where you could churn cards. And even before that, you could just churn cards so fast. You would open a card, get the sign up bonus, close the card, like 45 days later, reopen the card and then just do it over and over again. So everything on the card was just getting 50,000 points for every $3,000 of spend, which they've definitely cracked down on and you cannot do anymore. So there's tricks like that that have gone away. There's a thing called manufactured spending where people would basically buy dollar coins, like for $1 each, they like charge their credit card, buy them from the US Mint and then deposit those gold coins back into their bank account. So it was like a closed loop where they didn't really spend any money out of pocket because they were just buying money off of their credit card. So they would get credit card points and then that's not possible to do anymore either. So just kind of having a good understanding of what exactly is the history of what was available before that's no longer available and what's available now that was not previously available. Having a good understanding of that really helps to set expectations for how much free travel you can really get because there's so many sensationalized claims of 
I fly first class all the time. You can too. Well, okay, maybe that person runs their own construction business and they have to buy a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of supplies every month. They put on their credit cards and it's paid for by their business or, or something like that. So just making sure to have a good understanding of everybody's situation is a little bit different, especially for your audience who's in their 20s. Most of them are not going to be spending tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars on credit cards each month. And it's just so much easier to get those first class flights if you have your own business or if you're being reimbursed by a consulting company that's paying for all of your travel or anything like that. So I'd say the two main categories, financial pitfalls and then also mindset and expectation pitfalls about what you can do with travel hacking. And then the last one is being overly fearful of travel hacking. So kind of like we mentioned before, being afraid of anything with an annual fee, just avoiding travel hacking altogether because of what it could do to your credit or because you're afraid that it's a scam to start with without doing any research about how to make it strategically work. So complete avoidance out of a, an area of fear and being really slow to ever want to get started with travel hacking is also a pretty common, common pitfall. Awesome. I think those are all really great things to know about before you start travel hacking as a beginner. On the tactical side, I'd like to also mention that there's some rules that are important to know about and just to do some research ahead of time. Each bank that issues credit cards has different rules about how often you can get the credit cards, about how often you can get the bonuses, and how many credit cards they'll approve you for. So you want to make sure that you're looking into those rules before you create your strategy because there's some banks such as Chase Bank won't allow you to have more than five credit card uh, applications from any bank, not just their own, within 24 months. And if that's the case, if you have five applications within 24 months, they will not grant you a new credit card. You'll be denied on your application. So that was something that I misunderstood this role when I first started. And so I ended up getting a credit card that essentially took up one of those five slots and was not the value that I wanted to get from it. And so I would just recommend like do a little bit of research beforehand. There are plenty of websites that focus exclusively on, you know, those kind of rules and uh, very tactical pieces of how it works. And also make sure you're reading the up-to-date information. Like you mentioned in 2015 and 2016, the landscape was so different for travel hacking than it is right now. So even the case for what an annual fee is for a card or what the benefits are, those things change every couple of months or every year, depending on the card. So that's another thing I would just recommend to someone before you take the plunge and apply for your credit cards while you're still building that strategy, make sure that you know what the up-to-date information is, what the benefits and, and what the bonus is for the card. I would also add for common pitfalls, some people treat it like a sprint rather than a marathon where they do try to just apply for all the credit cards at once and then get suddenly so overwhelmed with, I don't know how to meet $12,000 of minimum spend. Chase started declining me. Like weird things happened to their credit score because they had four hard pulls in like five months or something like that. So take it slow at the beginning. Do your research, learn about things. There's tons of blogs. Uh, lots of people are into travel hacking that you can just ask questions of like, how did you do this? And are you still able to do that in today's world with the current credit card offers that are available? So take it slow. Don't, don't dive too deep into things. 
And pace yourself, right? It's, you know, can be really hard, especially for people who are frugal and people who are early in their careers to make, you know, usually you have about three months to make the minimum spend of 3000 or $5,000. And I know that when I first started travel hacking, I wouldn't have been able to make that spend on a credit card without that additional expense from my, my work expenses that were being reimbursed. So don't feel like you have to pressure yourself to be able to figure out ways to spend that money. You know, every three months or every six months, you can spread it out a little bit more. You don't have to, to make it all happen. Um, and then the last thing that I was thinking was you do want to prepare ahead of time before you plan to take a trip because it does take a while for you to hit the minimum spend, for you to get the points, and then to figure out how you're spending and redeeming those points and actually get them redeemed with whatever program you're using them for. Yes, for sure. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to submit a credit card application today for a trip that I want to take in like two weeks to a month from now. And it absolutely doesn't work that way. It's going to take at least one credit card cycle for your bonus points to show up. And that's if you meet the minimum spend right away. So that's a really good point is it does take time where some people are like, hey, I would like to travel hack this trip for two months from now. And it's going to be over the weekend of Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's. In Hawaii, I'm like, okay, good luck. Like, you need to plan out a little bit more there. And then also, like, from the redemption side, it, it really helps to be flexible with your dates, where if you're going during either the summer or Christmas vacation break or any peak vacation break, the redemption rates that you're going to get are maybe not as good, where if you're willing to travel off-season, a lot of these rules for points are the same principles that would apply with if you're just wanting to spend normal dollars or regular currency in order to get these trips, like look at off season, look at, um, are there any special events going on at a particular time that could raise hotel rates or flight rates? So just a couple more things to keep in mind as you're redeeming points. Yeah. Rates and availability as well. That's one of the reasons that I recommend that you have at minimum three months between when you're awarded the points and when you're traveling because you need that time to make sure that the availability for, say, the hotel room or the flight is actually there and you're going to be able to take that trip. If you're trying to book something a month before it happens, especially if it's in a popular time, you might have difficulty actually finding availability and being able to, especially if you have more than one person going, being able to secure those those spots that you were looking for, the type of room or the class in, you know, the airline flight. So that's one thing. Also keep in mind, this is something that I didn't realize until I actually started doing it. When you apply for a credit card, you don't get that credit card that day. You don't necessarily even get the approval that day. So when you're planning for those expenditures, you want to make sure that you're applying for the credit card early, I would say about two weeks before you expect to have that expense, because they may delay your application and require more information from you, which could be a phone call, and then they might have to think about it for a little bit. So it could take anywhere from instantaneous to, say, three to five days to be approved for your credit card and then they have to mail it. So while you can request that they mail it express and they send it as quickly as possible, which is what I usually do, I'll call them up and just say, hey, would you be able to expedite that? I'm planning to use this credit card as soon as I can and I'd really love to put my purchase on this new card that I got. It can take anywhere from seven to 14 days for you to get your new card or anywhere from probably two to, to 14 days to get your new card. And so just to be aware that you might not be able to buy those things that you're planning right after you apply for the credit card. 
That's such a good point because a lot of people are like, hey, a uh, random $1,000 bill came up today. Is there a credit card that I can get where I can put this and get some points for it? And the answer is generally no. Like the only one that I've gotten like immediately was the American Express Platinum where they they approved me on the spot and they gave me the credit card number for online purchases that same day. But most of the time, it's absolutely, like you said, it takes at least a week in order for everything to get approved and then mailed to me. Yeah. I think American Express actually is the only bank that's doing instantaneous credit card numbers. When you get your approval, they'll give you a temporary card number to use online purchases and things like that. But keep in mind that you still won't be able to use it in a location that you need a physical credit card, like a store, if you were going to buy something. But I did, I found that out when we applied for both of our Hilton American Express cards and found that was very handy and nice, but can't always be expected from every card in every bank. I think we talked about the benefits and the pitfalls and the things to know before you start. I mean, I would recommend to anyone who's thinking about it, do a little bit of research, read up on some people who have already done these things, and you can even ask someone to help you. So, Julia, you provide travel hacking consulting services, right? I do. So if you have a particular trip that you want to travel hack and you're a little bit pressed for time, or I would normally just say, take a while, do your research, know where you want to go, who flies there, what hotels are there, and what credit cards you would need in order to get points there. If you are like down to the wire and you're like, I just don't have the time or like the interest in researching the travel hacking on my own, can you just put together a travel hacking plan for me and just walk me through like the really quick need to know information for how to do this? I offer that kind of service through my website at geobreezetravel.com. And there's also a lot of different resources on my website as well, as far as blog posts and then free downloadable things. Like I mentioned earlier, there's the email upgrade template for different hotels that we used in Maui. And then I also have a free video travel hacking course just to kind of walk people through the four steps that I would recommend to get started with travel hacking and how to plan a travel hacking trip that people can download for free on my website as well. And both of those things, I actually made a special link for your listeners at geobreezetravel.com slash 20 free, where they can get both of those things easily sent to their inbox if they want to learn more about travel hacking. Awesome. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? I am. Okay. What does freedom mean to you? For me, freedom is where you get to make decisions based off of you think it's what's right or what makes you happy, or it's from a place of positivity rather than a place of I'm doing this because I'm mad at something or I'm afraid of something or I'm desperate to get out of a particular situation. And what would you do if you could retire right now? If I could retire right now and the world were not shut down, I would probably go to a beach house somewhere. And then still a lot of what I'm doing, I've just been reading a lot about website development and Instagram development and Pinterest and blogging. And just the learning is so interesting for me, which I think is part of why I also really like travel hacking. So just kind of plopping myself down somewhere where I can sit next to a body of water and with my laptop and just keep on learning a bunch of cool new different different skills. And what would you do if you could never retire? Hmm. I really like my current job. So as an actual project manager, I probably want to do something similar to that. And then I would maybe still do a bunch of different side gigs just to keep myself, keep myself entertained. And I also just think that all of it ties in together. And 
travel hacking helps with strategic planning. It makes me a better actuary. Like being able to interact with people through travel hacking coaching helps me to be a better manager and a better partner to all of the other departments that I work with. So possibly something very similar to what I do today. If I knew that I would be employed forever, maybe live in an even higher cost of living area, but New York's pretty, pretty expensive. I, I'm not sure how much happier we'd be with like a three times larger apartment, but I'm, like I said, I, I struggle to think how we would spend that much money each year, but if I were challenged to, I could probably figure it out. <laughs> That's that's such a fun thought experiment, and I think that a lot of people should do that. Even if you're not at the point where you really can spend all of that money, it's great to think, what could I spend my money on that I think would make me happier, and then figure out how you could maybe incorporate some of those things into your life now on your journey to financial independence. Um, travel where you're like, oh, it would really make me happy if I could travel more, and then there's something like travel hacking where if you're thinking, oh, I would really like to be able to eat out more, go to different restaurants, maybe like just learning how to cook a lot of fancy foods at home by yourself. Or if you really like fancy wines, then you don't have to buy a whole bunch of fancy wines. Maybe you'll you'll have just as much entertainment in your life reading books about it or like watching YouTube videos or just something that brings that interest into your life. If you were to think, what would make me really happy if I had, if resources weren't a limitation? Yeah, I love that thought experiment. If you could go back in time, what one piece of financial or lifestyle design advice would you give to yourself in your early 20s? Oh, I would have definitely let loose a little bit more. <laughs> Not been so like so focused and so silo viewed on everything goes into this one goal at a time. Even though I know that's such a common piece of advice on the internet is you will get so much done if you just focus all of your energy on one thing because I'm a very human example of what happens when you do that. You, Yes, you, you get to cross all of your goals off, but then suddenly you wake up one day and you're like, oh, I could retire, but like I, I wouldn't even want to. So like I probably would trade a little bit of that to have just gone out a little bit more in my early 20s and just understand that life isn't just binary and it is a sliding scale and it's not completely going to deter your life if you let yourself have happiness here and there. It's very much encouraged. Thank you, Julia. Where can everyone go online to learn more about you? Yeah, so my website is geobreezetravel.com. I'm also very active on Instagram at instagram.com slash geobreezetravel. Then I'm starting up on Pinterest as well, and I have the same handle there as well. Um, So you guys can find me on those three platforms. So awesome. Thank you for being on the podcast, Julia. Thank you so much. It was so nice getting to speak with you today. To check out the show notes for this episode, which includes links to resources mentioned in today's interview and where you can go to learn more about Julia, go to 20free.co slash episode 46. I want this to be more than just a podcast for listening to. So I'm making it a do-cast where you're getting information from the podcast that you can take action on to create real outcomes in your life. I call these power moves. If you implement even one of these tactics into your life, you're taking a powerful step towards finding your freedom. What are some power moves we learned from this conversation? Here are seven. Power move number one, balance using money and time as tools. Money and time are both resources that you can use to solve problems. 
there's a sliding scale of how to solve problems with each. On one hand, you can spend time to save money, and on the other hand, you can spend money to save time. It's important to find a balance here in order to optimize both. You don't have to throw money at travel. You can spend a little time to learn how travel hacking works. But you also don't need to spend time doing things yourself when you could hire a little help and spend some money for a solution. For example, Julia poured a lot of time into studying, but may have been better off hiring a tutor to accelerate her learning and give her some time back to go out and enjoy with friends and family. Power move number two. Research the rules. There are a lot of different rules and best practices when it comes to travel hacking credit cards and strategies. If you don't understand the rules before you start applying, you could get denied for credit cards, not earn the sign-up bonus, or fail to get the credit cards that you need for a certain trip. Different banks have different rules about the number of cards you can have, how often you can earn the sign-up bonus, and how often you can apply for credit cards. These rules also change regularly, so make sure you stay up to date on the most recent information. Do some research to get a basic understanding of the rules around travel hacking before you start applying for cards. Power move number three, get specific on your next destination. Figuring out where you want to go is always a key step towards achieving a goal, and that isn't any different for travel hacking. Before you run out and apply for any credit cards, hop on Pinterest and select your next destination. Figure out where you want to travel and what you want to do while you're there. Then you can look into what hotels are available in that area and what airlines fly to that city. Having a tangible travel goal that you want to work towards is so much more motivating than just wanting to travel more. It will also help you create a clear travel hacking strategy because you won't be amassing points for no reason. With a specific destination in mind, you can get the specific credit cards that will help you get there for free. Power move number four, know your current starting position. Understanding your credit score and spending patterns are key to travel hacking successfully. You can check your credit score for free on creditkarma.com. A credit score of 700 to 750 is typically required to get approved for most travel credit cards. I'd also recommend tracking your credit score on a monthly basis so you can see how your credit card applications and card payments affect your score. Additionally, you'll want to know your spending patterns. You can use mint.com to track and categorize your transactions for a few months to see what categories you spend the most in. This will give you valuable information on what are the best credit cards for you based on your personalized spending. Power move number five, get credit cards before big purchases. The best strategy for earning travel rewards points is to meet the minimum spend of a credit card, which is usually 3,000 to 5,000 over a period of three months. This minimum spend will guarantee you the signup bonus for the credit card. The key to making travel hacking worth it is to not actually spend any more money than you'd usually spend to get those rewards. Especially if your spending is typically low, you might have trouble making a minimum spend without planning around big purchases. If you have an upcoming large expense, such as an appliance, technology, or furniture, you should put that expense on a travel rewards credit card to earn free travel. Julia likes to say that if you're paying for a wedding, you should get your honeymoon for free using travel hacking strategies. Remember, you should apply at least two weeks before the expense, and you should plan to earn your points approximately three to six months before your trip. Power move number six, 
ask for the upgrade. You don't know if you don't ask, right? One of the best ways to get free luxury experiences is to simply ask for them. Especially if you have status with a hotel through a credit card, you are more likely to get an upgrade. Julia and I have both gotten amazing upgrades to crazy expensive suites, bottles of champagne, free meals, and more, just by asking. Check out Julia's template email for upgrade requests, which is linked in the show notes at 20free.co slash episode 46. Power move number seven. Be flexible with travel dates. When you're redeeming all of the points you earned from travel hacking, being flexible with your travel dates will help you get even more free value. If you can travel off-season instead of at peak times like over the summer or during holiday breaks, you'll see better rates and availability. Most of the time, traveling on the weekends is going to be more expensive than traveling on weekdays, so if you can shift your vacation a few days in either direction, you could get more value from your points and maybe even stay an extra night or two with your savings. That is the seventh and final power move for my conversation with Julia Menez from GeoBreeze. Do you want to finally feel good about your finances and have a stress-free plan to create a life you love? It's time for you to reach your biggest money goals, like paying off debt, building up savings, and using your money to create your ideal life. As a money coach, I will help you gain clarity about what freedom looks like for you, develop a strategy to get there, and overcome your money roadblocks on the path to financial and lifestyle freedom. Let's hop on the phone. During our free 15-minute coaching call, we're going to develop a vision for your ideal life and how your finances fit in. Not only are you going to get massive clarity, you're also going to get a free spending plan spreadsheet just for booking the call. Visit 20free.co slash moneycoaching to get your free money coaching call and budget spreadsheet right now. That's the word 20, F-R-E-E dot C-O slash moneycoaching. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you're subscribed to the Find Your Freedom podcast on whatever app you're using to listen to this episode. Do me a favor and also leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Go to 20free.co slash iTunes to be redirected to the page on Apple Podcasts where you can leave your rating and review. I really appreciate it. If you think this episode would help someone you know, please share it with a friend. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Find Your Freedom podcast. My name is Becky. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at 20freeco and sign up for free resources and email updates at www.20free.co. That's the word 20, F-R-E-E dot C-O. I'll talk to you next week on another episode of the Find Your Freedom podcast. <laughs>